So in today's episode, although we're talking about architecture, we also did a real big deep dive into the areas that surround it. And for me, that was most fascinating because we weren't just talking about the design process. We were also talking about how, I guess, artificial intelligence might play a role in iterative design um, for the future kind of, of this space. So Nick, what were some of your key takeaways for this? Well, I was super interested about knowing uh, all the different kind of points that uh, uh, you know are involved in, from the design to the, uh, the the testing, and but also the creation of the actual building. We talked about three D printing and the future of construction. And and Jeff, what what was the, the thing that uh, fascinated you the most to talk about today? Uh, well, for me, as someone who produces software to be used now or for a very imminent future, like tomorrow or what we can technically do today. It was really interesting for me to talk about and to speculate on what the future of an architect could be and how these technologies might change the design process more radically in the future than they already are today. So don't miss this episode of Field of View dedicated to Metaverse XR and architecture with Jeff Anderson. Brought to you by Accenture Extended Reality. This is Field of View. Hello and welcome to Field of View, the podcast that expands your vision of the Metaverse. My name is Nick Rosa from Accenture. And my name is Daniel Kolayani, the Chief Executive at AIXR. So today, me and Nick had a really fascinating conversation with Jeff Anderson. Now, Jeff is a VR AR designer at, and I'm always going to get this wrong, Mancini, Mancini, uh, <laughs> uh, kind of architecture firm. Uh, and he's also the kind of co-founder of the Toolbelt, which is a, a tool that architects have been using uh, to be able to develop and, and kind of collaborate with people. Nick, this is a really interesting conversation, right? Because kind of uh, Jeff's a really knowledgeable character, right? Really knowledgeable guy yeah. around different sectors of this. Yeah, we're going to talk about different things that are related to all the production and the design process of uh, buildings and real estate. And by the way, the firm is Mancini Duffy Design Lab, let's say. There we go. But now it's time to introduce our guest. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So uh, we usually ask to all of our guests to start the conversation with a little bit of their origin story. So mm -hmm. why don't you take us through uh, what took you to start doing what you do right now and uh, what sparked the interest in immersive world and, and immersive technologies? Sure. Uh, so my name is Jeffrey Anderson, uh, and I've been an AR and VR developer for the last seven years or so, uh, but I was trained as an architect. Um, so during my architectural education, I had the opportunity to do a thesis project. And this was right around 2015 when developer kits for uh, the first generation of consumer VR headsets were starting to come out. And I had kind of a hunch that this would be a super important technology for architecture, which is a, a spatial uh, a field. And I ordered the dev kit for the Oculus uh, DK2, and I put it on and I basically said, this is going to be a revolution for architecture. And I, I focused all my attention uh, moving forward on how different visualization technologies can impact architecture and how we relate to clients and how we develop worlds. And uh, I mean, the, the process of developing virtual spaces, obviously it's deeply connected to what you do in real life. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more how 
the design of uh, uh, your actual building and real spaces change since the advent of this kind of technology? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, architects have been using um, 3D modeling software to develop designs for buildings, you know, for the last two decades or so. Maybe they began in the 90s kind of as an experiment, but it, the technology got adopted more and more in the 2000s and it's kind of a, a industry standard now. Um, so we've been working with 3D software for many years, but normally when you go to produce a visualization of an architectural space, you do a kind of a, a still rendering of the, the vision of the space. So you kind of freeze the model, develop the assets within it and produce a visualization, a kind of 2D image of the interior or whatever. Um, and when I was in school, you know, I had been playing video games that had been rendering in real time for many years. And I just thought that getting the sense of the space um, was more important in a kind of real time scenario as opposed to a static rendering. That's when I became deeply skeptical of these um, forms of representation that we use to communicate architectural spaces and thought there could be other opportunities. Have you ever been playing with uh, the mods that were available for Doom to create your own spaces? I was after that generation, I think. That, like uh, Doom and Quake, those things. I think that some there's a generation of architects that were using those in schools at a certain point, and I missed those uh, projects. <laughs> I like to imagine that when you went out and bought a VR headset for the first time, that you were probably experimenting with things like testing things out and checking things. At what point did you feel confident enough to be able to go to another architect or your line manager or something like that and say, hey, look, this is the future. This is the technology that we need to be using. Yeah. Well, I remember specifically the first like really powerful moment I had in VR. Uh, I was uh, sitting on my couch and running the DK2 on my laptop. Uh, and this is, um, yeah, 2015. And it was nighttime. And I was playing around with different games. Like there were previews of games that they had out in 2015. And I was playing like a maze game, like a puzzle game. And, you know, I got to level four or something. And I looked up and there was like a ghoul reaching down at me. And it, it terrified me. And it was like nighttime. I took off the headset. And I, at that moment, I was like, this has the potential to create very powerful, like visceral effects. And like fear is the, the lowest kind of barrier to entry. There's a lot of kind of like jump scare VR games. But just that feeling of, of how powerful that sense I got from it, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to pursue this for architectural purposes. Um, no, but then I, mean, I had to, yeah. Sorry, please go on. I had to kind of pitch it to my thesis advisor at the time. And I had been interested in new forms of representation and kind of bodily relation of a person to architectural space. And this was kind of a translation of some of those interests into a kind of interactive design that you could design and experience architectural spaces at the same time. And I believe then, I guess, that now with all this uh, uh, buzz that there's around the metaverse and virtual spaces and, uh, uh, you know, immersive experiences, uh, um, your kind of profession is extending beyond the physical spaces, the utilization of 3D software for physical spaces. Now you can design directly for 
digital spaces and digital domain, which mm-hmm. is incredibly interesting because at this point, you are not bounded anymore by the laws of physics. How does the process of designing for completely digital spaces changes from what you're designing for real spaces? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And, you know, um, I, I also teach, besides being an AR and VR professional, I teach at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn and the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And in those courses, um, teaching some of the kind of vi- new visualization techniques to students, this is a real opportunity to outside of the professional space where, you know, I'm working for an architecture firm that has to physically produce buildings in the world. I'm able to kind of communicate with students about these issues where what if you could produce an architectural experience that wasn't meant to be built, it was meant to be experienced purely in a digital space. Um, So we're able to not just play with gravity and things like that, but also play with um, interactions that couldn't happen in the real world, connecting how you move around with the atmosphere that you see around you, playing with lighting and things like that. And I think that really changes the relationship of the user to the architectural space, right? It could be that the architectural space harmonizes with how you move around in a very specific experience to a particular person, as opposed to being static and uh, maybe changing a little as you move through it, but truly that connection to to a single user. Do you, do you guess, I guess, do you envision a world where architects don't need to interact with i guess screens um as we do today i mean just like i guess how architects probably used to interact solely with pen and pencil and paper or pen and paper Mm -hmm. and then moved really to digital with computers do you think the next shift could potentially be kind of architects actually doing this directly within immersive technology yeah so that was my thesis in 2015 and I was using a leap motion, like the hand scanner thing, with the DK2. And I made a kind of gestural design program where you could use your hands and commands that I had programmed with, uh, with gestures to produce architectural space around you. And after having done that, focused on the user interface, the user experience for uh, a year in a very kind of intense uh, um, setting, I I found that like, it's difficult to do, right? You have to like act out and move around and it takes a lot of attention and focus um, to produce this world around you. Um, And the abstraction of the mouse and keyboard and commands that you can type in and these sort of things for 3D modeling software has been so, um, so helpful and useful and kind of ergonomically designed for someone to be able to work for a long period of time. I think it'll be longer before we begin to adopt design in VR, but that's not to say that it's not something possible, right? So we couldn't imagine a headset on your face, whatever, a hundred years ago, and now that's a technical possibility. In the future, you could imagine instead of a gesture-based or a controller-based interface, somehow there's an interface that allows you to kind of think the space around you and it just becomes a, a reality and then you can respond to what you see. So I wouldn't want to limit, I wouldn't want to say there's not not something that could happen in the future for sure. We already seen some example of uh, uh, this kind of technology with uh, some of the progresses that have been made by the Meta AI labs, where Mm -hmm. they've been able to create spaces just with natural language processing. 
saying uh-huh. like uh, spawn a tree, create a rock, and uh, yeah, yeah. show me a blue sky and some sea and so on. Amazing. So basically, you could literally live the space that you were describing a little bit like what Dali is doing. Have you tried mm-hmm. the, the, the tool? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Something that uh, a lot of architects are beginning to play around with, that kind of pure moment of creativity interacting with the software. Well, Nick, you've got me like on the Nick's uh, provocative corner question there, which I don't know if I should ask just yet or if I should just go in with, but you open- Go for it, Dan, go for it. You open the floodgates uh, gates with Dali. Okay, so so broader topics around this stuff is is obviously the metaverse, I guess. Like, you know, we're talking about virtual reality and augmented reality and how that has an impact. And, and I want to deep dive further into that. Mm-hmm. But also elements around the metaverse is also how do the other the, these other areas kind of come into play, especially like artificial intelligence. How does that have its role within this world, these virtual worlds that we're creating? Do you, is it entirely possible to say that eventually architects will no longer be needed and that AI could actually generate and create these virtual worlds for us on your behalf? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, There's this, uh, you know, the ability for the AI to iterate through thousands and thousands of designs for you and then for you to experience them. I think that, you know, the possibility for you to inhabit those spaces is definitely there. Architects are starting to use tools where you can do a kind of floor plan, space plan, um, using you know inputs that you uh, you enter in, and then you get whatever a hundred iterations, and then you can kind of decide as a, a trained architect with a discerning eye which ones are good, and then you can do a kind of um, generational you know decision making for which one is best. So like the ability to create many, many iterations is definite, and to inhabit them is for sure a possibility. I think that architects are still going to be necessary for the kind of discerning eye, like what is good, what is interesting, what is, um, you know, a kind of critical space or uh, a good space coming out of these programs. But I don't want to discount the, the um, potential future of AI to get better than us at it, right? <laughs> I mean, is that the potential then that it's it's almost like an enhancing tool? So especially if you're in like a virtual world environment and you're creating an environment um, that like what Nick said, the ability to be able to bring in uh, trees or foliage or, or things like yeah. that as a as an additional thing can, can kind of happen procedurally rather than you having to even think about where the tree placements have to be and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That I think that makes a lot of sense. What do you think is the next frontier for architecture in the digital spaces? I mean, right now you started to experiment with fully digital space after a very long time of a very classic legacy way of working where you were using CAD design to build actual physical spaces. Now you're moving towards fully digital and uh, uh, what is missing in terms of the processes and potentially even research right now in order to achieve the next level of what can be done in fully digital spaces for architecture? Yeah, I think that for the physical construction of space, there are a lot of regulatory frameworks that um, architects have to work through. So the Department of Buildings, for example, 
you know, checks all of your drawings to ensure um, that you um, meet regulations and these sorts of things. Um, we've been talking with clients and contractors about could we design and build a space without ever having to do the 2D drawings, that these, that all of the design parameters are checked against a virtual model in VR or in AR so that they can construct it. Um, and, and that would save us a ton of time of processing our models, which are already 3D, into 2D drawings. However, um, dealing with uh, how these drawings need to go through the DOB, um, you know, that's, that's a, a larger kind of regulatory conversation. We could do smaller scale installations and things like that in pure AR or VR, which you're seeing a lot of uh, companies like Fologram, for example, do demonstrations of an AR uh, plugin where you can, you know, work with a human. It's kind of like human assisted AR where it can tell you bend this uh, metal tube in this orientation and weld it right here. So you can kind of construct something using AR instructions. Um, but I think, you know, the, the grander scheme of things is could we do a whole building without having ever done the 2D drawings, um, which I think requires a lot of buy-in between the architects, the clients, and the contractors, and the, the kind of regulatory institutions around them. There's also an interesting um, topic that you're touching here. The other day I was having a conversation with uh, one of the um, clients that I'm working with. And we were talking about the need of interconnecting the data between, for example, infrastructure and, and, and utility providers, um, uh, the, 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 I don't know, the, the sewage service company, uh, the, the energy company to have a full vision of what's underneath the surface mm -hmm. of uh, the street in order to understand uh, where are the pipes and where the electricity and uh, where do you have to dig in order to do a specific kind of, uh, you know, work. And, 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 and right now, all those data are in silos and need to be requested mm -hmm. to all the different kind of companies and regulatory uh, bodies in order to achieve a design that is compliant to, you know, the, the normal construction of a building. Uh, but in the future, when we're going to be able to create full, digital twin of cities this is going to speed up massively the process of potentially checking against some specific regulation and any infrastructure that there is uh, actually available in the real world mm -hmm. yeah we're actually um thinking about some of these things we began to play with the magic leap recently and we're doing some experiments with super practical um kind of um geometry alignment with a kind of digital twin idea. So for example, let's say that uh, an electrical engineer is coming to your floor in an office building and they need to do something with the electrical panel. So where is the electrical panel on that floor? They might have to go through several, um, you know, several agencies to, find, to locate that or ask someone. But if that location of that electrical panel is aligned with a digital model, and you have an AR headset on, you can create a path that just takes you to it and instructs you what to do, how to get there, maybe even who to ask to, to, to get access to it. So we've done some experiments with that and it's definitely something that we're thinking about, a kind of like enhanced um, sensibility of 
what you can see within the city, kind of like x-ray vision through a building or something like that, or pathfinding. So is this more a case of, I guess, like obviously there's a clear desire, a clear will, a clear kind of like uh, need or want in for, for architects and for people like yourselves to be innovating in this space. Is is it a case of that where we're simply waiting for regulatory and, and kind of government bodies to catch up here? Like if you were to remove that, jigsaw piece from the puzzle here is it very feasible to say well actually all of this could be very interconnected and we could be using all of this stuff like tomorrow like yeah i think there's a kind of uh you know we're being held back a bit by regulatory agencies and also i think there's um you know there's been a somewhat slower adoption of vr and ar technologies particularly like headset based ar um i think there's not really a truly consumer cost consumer priced AR headset out there. Like the Magic Leap 2 now is like 3,200 bucks or something. That's not something that um, everyone is going to buy and we're gonna suddenly see this new world where everyone's wearing these headsets. But I think for professionals, um, a kind of suite of helpful tools, helpful software for um, doing your job in that kind of environment is starting to become a, a possibility. I think it's just, uh, you know, we need a bit more time for um, making the tools more available to people and then making people more comfortable with them and then kind of getting the the regulatory and societal buy-in to producing these kinds of digital twins of buildings and cities that are truly usable. I mean, you created a, a piece of software for yourself, right? For, I think it was like the, like a, the tool belt for kind of architects in terms of things. Could you explain a little bit more about that, of what went into that? Yeah, so when I began at Mancini Duffy, um, they had just opened uh, or kind of thought of a wing of the company called the Design Lab, where they would experiment with design technologies and also new ways to interact with clients. Um, so I came in, um, you know, doing a variety of things, 3D printing, creating simple tools for the designers and also working on a VR software. So a way to engage with clients at all stages of the design process from more schematic uh, design processes through creating construction drawings of buildings. Um, and as I was making the software, we found that I was making it more and more usable for the um, people in the office, as opposed to them having to come to me and say, I have this special client meeting, we need to do a custom experience in VR for this client. I was creating tools that allowed you to go directly from their design tools like Revit and AutoCAD and Rhino and things like that into a VR visualization. So once this became increasingly um, kind of uh, self-sustaining software, we began thinking of ideas for launching it outside of our company to be a useful tool for other people. Um, and once the pandemic hit, uh, we, we developed a kind of multiplayer system for it where someone could be on their desktop and keyboard, someone could be in VR, someone could be in New Jersey, someone could be in New York. And we were kind of instantly like, okay, this is ready to be a software that other people can use. You can interact with a client remotely get a lot of decision-making done around uh, an in-process architectural space. Um, and so we decided to kind of brand it and launch it as a, an external tool. Mm. 
I think I, I read this this uh, statistic somewhere where it's like three three weeks of work in three hours. Yeah, so that's something that we we kind of we've developed the software through interacting with a series of clients in the office, and we were finding that you know these were old old clients that had been coming in and working with us for many years, and the typical architectural design process is we'll make three options. We'll create plans and drawings of them and visualizations and present them in a kind of 2D PDF to the client. The client will pick the design they like or aspects of those three designs, and we'll go back and work for two weeks and then come back with a new set of drawings in another kind of 2D presentation. So those small decisions that you make one at a time through the abstraction of a building plan, we brought all of those kind of decision-making um, properties, you know, exploring options and things like that into VR, where we can get a fully immersive interaction with the client who can tell us specifically what's working and what's not working. And we can change the design as they're in VR. So instead of them saying, oh, what if this wall was brick or whatever, you know, 10 years ago, you'd say, okay, come back in two weeks and we'll show you that is brick. and now they can just reach out and touch it and suddenly it's brick and they can make a decision right there while we're with them and i suppose that's another aspect that is absolutely key when it comes to visualization in architecture is the decision for materials for interior design that's before was quite abstract and done with uh, colors on a, on a Pantone colors on a book uh, and mm -hmm. a, a piece of material that you put on the yeah, table. Yeah, a one-inch piece of material that's exactly like, exactly. Yeah. And 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 this completely revolutionized the way that you're doing this this kind of uh, this kind of activity, right? The, the immersive technology completely revolutionized the way that you select colors and material for any kind of building. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, now you can do PBR materials that are interacting with the lighting in the space and you can get like real color temperatures and lighting elements. So you're going to produce a very realistic view of what the space is going to be like. But also we often use this VR technology in a kind of white box scenario. So when you're doing schematic design with the client, we need to know how big it is, where things are, stuff like that first before they get distracted by the materials. So in developing the software with clients, we found that sometimes they would get totally hung up on like the material on the floor. And we're like, we're not talking about the floor. We're talking about how big it is. We need to like determine these parameters first. Yep. So with that engagement, like in real time with clients, we developed a lot of the tools that we use in our um, tool belt software. And we've, we've learned how to deal with a new generation of clients that expect and that interact with you in a particular way in a real-time VR visualization. Can you take me a little bit through a journey of the usual engagement that you have with one of your clients? How does it work? I mean, do, do you, uh, you know, send an Oculus Quest to your clients to experience this in a multi-user environment? Do you bring them to your office to uh, experience it on high fidelity, I don't know, wired headsets? How does it work? Yeah, so in our office, uh, we actually just moved offices. Um, and we dedicated even more space to what we call the design lab. Yep. So we have a Vive Pro 2 
um, set up in the design lab. And that's where we typically like to have our interactions with clients. Um, but our software is also compatible with Oculus Quest or whatever. We have an Oculus Quest 2 that we will will take around to clients. But normally we're there with them. If we do a multiplayer experience, they're normally on a desktop and keyboard. It's just kind of a more comfortable experience. There's kind of a learning curve and a comfortability curve that we like to be there for when they're putting the headset on and using the controllers and things like that. And, and by curiosity, are you using a software that you install on computer or you do all cloud rendered in a browser? So it's a desktop based um, app right now, but I'm working on a, a web-based version. Awesome. So the web-based version you can do, um, it's just desktop and keyboard, but I'm going to implement web VR on it um, soon. That's kind of where we're taking it um, in the future. Cause you know, we built this amazing software, people can have this multi-user experience, whatever. And then we'll come to a client and they'll say, ah, I don't want to download anything. So recently I've, I've you know, oh, great. So recently I've been working on, on the, uh, the web-based app. But, but it, it also happens, for example, for highly regulated environment. For example, I, I suppose that you may have like banking clients and those people cannot install anything on their, their computer, yeah, right? For sure. Yeah. So it's kind of like a situation that we're all stuck in now that we have all this technology, right? We need to make it, and we've made it so easy to use, whatever we've, we've developed the user interface and user experience so much. And then they say, I don't want to download it or I can't download it. Um, I, so, you know, we're, we're kind of going in that direction. Now. I can tell Nick is speaking from a, a place of pain there. Anyone who works yeah. with enterprise clients <laughs> has experienced this. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you find that like, um, so, so I remember this, so I remember an experience, um, like I didn't, has everyone here tried like Richie's plank experience? Uh, mm -hmm. that one where you walk on the, the, the wooden plank and you have to jump. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. someone uh, blows a fan at you or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like ages ago, but like ages, ages ago. But I remember the, 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 the principle that I took away from that, but a, a VR environment does not need to be ultra realistic for it to trick your mind. Uh, yeah. So, so, cause this goes back to Nick's question, I guess, of why you were asking it, Nick, but like, obviously there's a very big difference between using a, a, a meta quest two for, for, for visualization purposes versus maybe let's say a Vario headset that's plugged into to kind of a PC that requires like two graphics cards. Um, do you find that your clients notice the difference between quality, the quality of environments or has that not been a priority of yours? So honestly, most of our clients um, use a, well, we rarely produce a final, complete, photorealistic marketing-like VR experience. They're all like in-progress interactions with like a live model that we're working on. And those are the models where the clients make the most decisions. Um, those are the models where you, you, you want to get a sense of the space, you want to get a sense of the materials, and then you want to sign off on the, the design elements that you've decided. I find clients aren't like, oh, this marble isn't perfectly photorealistic. They're able to like make that mental jump. And because you're able to move around the space, I think that that gives them sufficient ability to understand what's going on. Mm. Like, you know, years ago, we would produce like a photorealistic rendering, a still frame, and then you'd build the thing. And then the client would say, oh, I didn't know it was like this. And then, and you're like, I completely rendered out every element in the space in photorealistic lighting. 
but with the headset on, even if it's not completely photorealistic or final, you know, the final design elements are in, just by moving around, they, they, they're able to fully get a sense of the space. And then we've produced some like compare and contrast before and after of like a VR experience and the final thing. And you, you know, you can see that, you know, it's exactly the same and they've gotten what they're, what they've, um, they've paid for. I mean, so Nick asked earlier about, um, I guess like the, the, to talk us through the process with a client, let's say that I'm a developer or I'm I'm an architect right now, like pretend that I know absolutely nothing about immersive technology, nothing about architecture, even down to the, I don't know what BIM means or anything like that. Like what Mm -hmm. explain, if you were to explain it to me, like I'm five, what, what is the actual process of creating an architecture environment down, down from starting with your design through to actually bringing it into VR through to the final product? Yeah. So let's say we have a new client, it's a developer or an independent client. They'll come into us and normally do a kind of feasibility study for, I want to do an office on this floor of this building. I want to see if this number of employees fits, this number of uh, meeting rooms, this number of whatever phone booths, that sort of thing. So we'll do that mostly in a kind of plan orientation where we're just able to kind of box out different areas and kind of mass it out and see if things fit, see how things might fit and maybe develop a little bit of a kind of mood board for what it could be like. So you enter and this is kind of what it's like and you go around. So that's mostly in 2D. Then uh, we go into schematic design where we begin to uh, three-dimensionalize this design, figure out some of the parameters for um, how it'll work, do accessibility and ADA, things like that, um, and flesh out the design design a bit more with um, at least some material concepts um, in addition to like, you know, the size and number of bathrooms, things like that, that are kind of um, with uh, require regulatory compliance and things like that. But that's a time when we'll also start to bring clients into VR. So, but we'll do it in a kind of white box scenario. So they're able to see the size of things, the relationship of whatever, let's say it is an office, desks to meeting rooms, how things are organized and laid out. And in our software, you're able to manipulate things, change things, and change materials, change uh, furniture and stuff like that. So they might do a bit of pushing and pulling in VR. And then uh, we'll we'll also, you know, work with the client to uh, move the design forward. So you can kind of take notes in the software and we can revise those things either live or have them come back to another another VR experience. Uh, Were you going to ask a question? Yeah, I wanted to ask a question. I'm I'm um, very curious about. I mean, we discussed about the design phase, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the design phase does is is not just create something beautiful or something usable. It's mm-hmm. also create something that works and something that is safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, can you talk us a little bit through some of the simulations that you're doing, for example, for earthquakes or for fire? wildfire or for floodings or for heavy winds that you're doing using heat waves technology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very hip right now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so those types of things we don't typically do in an immersive environment, but we do do simulations of them. And also when we're producing our 3D models in a software like Revit, for example, it's a building information model. 
So you can get the like R value of a wall assembly to do like for um, insulation and things like that. And then working with a structural engineer, you can do simulations for compliance for earthquakes, for example. So we don't do that sort of thing in VR, but what we will do is coordination between trades. So let's say I'm an architect working on the experience and the form and the layout and these things. I have a structural engineer who's sizing the, the structure and I have a mechanical engineer who is uh, dealing with airflow and things like that. So we've had experiences where we're about to bring a client into VR and the architects have designed a soffit to hide all of the mechanical the air supply and air return. And then we bring it into VR and we see the, the mechanical engineers have it all outside of the soffit exposed or like halfway oh through God. the architectural surfaces. So we say, okay, let's not have a meeting with the client. Let's have a meeting with the mechanical engineer <laughs> and show them why we designed it this way to hide all the ductwork and, and, and produce a kind of cohesive space and things like that. So things that begin to affect the kind of visual experience of the design, we definitely do coordination with other trades and do that in VR from time to time. So, so what's interesting to me is um, I always talk about this idea that I guess like VR screens, like anything from in between is kind of the human interface, right? But for, to interact with kind of virtual worlds and, and, and things like that and environments. So, uh, is it possible currently or is, is this something that people are working on? Because again, I'm, I'm quite new when it comes to the world of architecture and design of this space to be able to, I mean, we obviously have the skills to be able to say like, like to say, this is where the building's going to be. And I'm assuming that in some cases that we're able to actually replicate the lighting and things like that based on where the location is and, and things mm -hmm. like that as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then even down to the weather, I guess, in terms of like cloud patterns and stuff like that, is, is that something... Yeah, I mean, like um, sun studies and things like that, like realistic, where is the sun going to be on September 1st, 2022, that sort of thing. Um, those are important for certain types of clients and certain environments, like a south-facing building or something, for example. Cloud patterns and weather patterns, I don't I don't think I've done anything that, that's that precise. I mean, yeah. I bet there, there could be a, a very particular client who wants to have a kind of experience like if you're doing a house for someone who is like making a high-end house and wants to know what the sunset looks like over the ocean at a particular time i imagine that those those types of experiences and previewing them in vr are super important but i haven't done yeah. anything down to that type that granularity of because weather pattern yeah because i'm wondering like how easier it would be i mean considering that we're, we're creating virtual worlds here and we're taking like we're combining the physical world right with these virtual environments if it's even possible to to even determine that okay well based on the architectural design and structural design of this building right now we can estimate that inside this room during the summer it's probably going to be about 32 degrees uh -huh. like or, or or um whatever the the equivalent is in in the states is, is that yeah. possible as well um, to do those specific, I mean, uh, yeah, you can do, um, you can kind of understand the physics of the wall surface, right. And understand how much insulation is in it and what the heating and cooling load would be. Um, I think that would be interesting to do in a closed environment, like our design lab, like we could turn off the AC and show what it would be like 
when you're in this space to have a certain experience or turn on fans or something to replicate some more atmospheric effects. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause this, this area is really fascinating to me because especially around the world of digital twins, I mean, I'm obsessed about, I'm kind of a bit scared, but also obsessed at the same time with trying to figure out how can I create a digital twin of my apartment? For example, I'm mm -hmm. a bit scared of that process because um, well, uh, you know, imagine if that got hacked, uh, but you yeah. know, being able to, to see the moisture of the plants that I have and like when they need to see what the temperature of these rooms are based on the AC flow and things like that is really interesting because yeah. if you can not just take that from the, the, the stage of when a building is built, but actually start that from the very start process of things and yeah. have fully integrated the entire way through, then, you know, that could open up whole new possibilities. Yeah, I think that brings up like a really interesting possibility for VR, which is just the kind of synesthetic effects or kind of trickery that you can do. So I've done a workshop where um, I 3D printed a spoon and a bowl that was like attached to the VR controllers. So those are like in your space, like very accurately. And then I brought a bag of Cheerios and a bag of M&Ms and a bag of whatever. And I had the students kind of manipulate the like the kind of visual interface right so instead of a cheerio in the in the spoon you see a bunch of like particles flying out of it or something or worms or you know you could do like a fear factor type thing and we were able to kind of change the environment around you and how you interacted with something that you like touched and consumed um, and that was a super interesting experiment for sure and i think that brings up the possibilities of other environmental factors that you could you could affect, you could say, you could experience what it's like in another space, not only visually, but also tactilely, or you, or you could produce some sort of confusion between what's real and what's what you're mm. uh, experiencing. Have you played um, a bit with um, designing interior, doing interior design with uh, mix, high fidelity mixed reality? We've seen very impressive stuff that has been done by Vario on that space. We're starting to use um, mixed reality. Well, we're starting to use the Magic Leap to do some interior design-like decision-making like stuff. So we just moved into this new office and we're producing like a, a three-dimensional like sign, Mancini to go on the glass. Mm -hmm. And we have a bunch of design iterations that we wanted to go through with our boss. So we, we put that all into our kind of like 3D anchoring procedure to align it to the glass wall. And, you know, he picked a one that he liked and we started to 3D print it. So we're, we're just beginning to do things like that with the, with the Magic Leap. But previously we've been working only in uh, um, Vive and Oculus. Can, can we diverge a little bit from the immersive conversation? Uh, I mean, I'm fascinated by one of the things that you just said before <clears throat> sorry which is uh, uh the 3d printing process uh and 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 uh, techniques that uh architects are using right now to you know build prototypes and stuff like this mm -hmm. but uh, in the future there is the very real possibility that this kind of technology will be used to build the full building from the ground up mm -hmm. uh what what do you think how, how do you think architecture is going to be impacted by this kind of, of, of new wave of building constructions? Yeah. I mean, you're going to be able literally to build a, a, a full building in, in hours instead of months. 
Yeah, so you're starting to see some companies that are doing full-scale um, 3D printing of buildings with um, concrete, uh, for example. You're starting to see people also integrate other performative building materials into the 3D print, like imagine printing with concrete and insulation in it, for example. And I think right now you're starting to see these mostly as kind of simple extruded forms, but you're yeah. beginning to see a lot of experimentations with different kind of formal possibilities. I think it's going to be, um, I think it's definitely going to be a um, important technology in the future, especially as we need more housing. We need uh, inexpensive housing, affordable, these sorts of things. Yeah. affordable housing, and um, we need people and, or we need a way to produce these quickly and make them unique and comfortable for people, right? So it's not just the same thing prefabricated and produced over and over, but that the same machine could produce many different um, forms. Um, I think it's a super interesting possibility. I think that, you know, with these things, you have to deal with the kind of physical reality of, you know, technical possibilities of how to produce it uh, with the appropriate, um, you know, environmental um, uh, conditions on the interior, yeah. the performance of the building. Um, but we're beginning to overcome these hurdles and, and be able to get over some of the kind of more simple formal restraints of these. But yeah, I think definitely, you know, and then, and then we talked earlier about how in a kind of purely digital environment, you don't need to deal with any of these environmental conditions or uh, like the reality of gravity. So, you know, totally different kind of conversations, I think, but, um, but re related as like uh, new fields for sure. Yeah. Will we have metaverse architects? like on the same scale that Mancini does for real world buildings, will we still have that? Will we, will, will we have that on the same scale for virtual worlds? Um, I think that, um, you know, I always tell my students that you can have an architectural experience without a real built thing. It's a, it's a form of attention that you have. You can have an architectural experience with a drawing of a building, right? You can have an architectural experience with, you know, a preview of a building that you're looking at on an iPhone or something like that. Mm. I think that architectural experiences can happen without the physical thing being built. And I think that the increased adoption of metaverse spaces and metaverse technologies will create a market for people to want to have a particular experience that is unique to them and that has been designed and, and kind of created in, in concert with them. And that will create a market for metaverse architects that specialize in producing unique experiences that are spatial and that are persistent for people that they can share with others and that they can occupy and, and develop habitation over time and make it their own and change it over mm. time. So I think that this is a, a distinct new field that's arising and I think it'll be powerful and important. And I think it'll allow people to have experiences that they wouldn't be able to previously, right? People can't afford to go see whatever, the Amalfi Coast in Italy 
but you guys are in Italy now, right? Um, <laughs> but you could produce an experience where they have a sense of being there. And I think that'll be important and will kind of extend the possibilities for, for everyone to have new forms of experience. So your question was, will it be on the same scale as buildings that get built by architects these days? Uh, sure, why not? It, it could be, it could definitely be possible. Uh, I have a question for you that is a little bit of a provocative question. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you could have like a magic wand and, uh, you know, make one of your wishes come true. What would you like to uh, create in terms of tooling or exist in order to facilitate your work as an architect uh, in, in, with 3D spaces right now? If I had a magic wand where I could produce anything, that is a provocative question. It's a very open-ended question as well. <laughs> um, I think that uh, if I had a magic wand, you know, we talked about some of the kind of regulatory bodies and kind of bureaucracy that slow down the new possibilities for production that are basically available to us today if we, you know, if we, if everybody, if everyone buys into whatever, we're going to produce a building without using yep. any drawings. I think using my magic wand to create a scenario for that project to be built as a demonstration, I think I would use it to, to do that, right? To demonstrate fully a technology that exists now that if only people all bought into trying it, then we could do it. And then I in the future, you can see... I need to go further. <laughs> I know. I was going to say. I think you need to go buy a, a private island and uh, yeah. test test this out where nobody can uh, can judge you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and and I suppose that you know technologies like blockchain could really facilitate this kind of stuff. I mean, if you are able to, um, you know, match the data of your project that obviously is your IP in a secure way with what are the data that are related to regulations and institutions mm -hmm. and contracts that are connected to building and construction yeah. and, and, you know, and automatically generate the sign off for those kind of buildings. I think that that would be a win-win for everybody. But I yeah. Think and it's not, you can't, um, you can't fake it, right. It's, it's exactly. non-fungible. You signed off on this thing and everybody is all coordinated and there's no, um, you know, there's no uh, fudging it, right? I think that that could definitely be a possible way of producing and enforcing contracts for the, this type of work in the future. And I have a second provocative question for you, uh, because obviously we're talking about smart contracts and NFTs, and one of the big advantages of NFTs as smart contracts is that enables companies that are producing assets or services or products to cash in into the second-hand market, third-hand mm -hmm. market, and so on. Because obviously, when you sell an NFT and the person that purchased initially the NFT resell the NFT, the initial creator gets a cut of the money. Mm -hmm. This works very well for, for example, the automotive industry, 
because you can enrich the NFT with data that are connected to how many parts have been changed. If the car had a car accident, how many mm -hmm. kilometers the car drove. So basically the new buyer can make an informed purchase and understand exactly the value of the car. So even if it's buying the NFT and not the car, you know, for example, you to unlock the car, you need to have the NFT on your, on, on your phone. Uh, it's, it's, it's not something that is decremental to the purchase because obviously you make a better and more informed purchase of an asset that costs quite a lot of money. Mm -hmm. With real estate, this is even more interesting, obviously, for the companies that are building the, 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 the actual uh, real estate. Because yeah. right now they make the sale of an asset that is extremely expensive and usually gets appreciated a lot with time. Uh, and, and we know how the prices are skyrocketing in all the big cities in San Francisco, mm -hmm. New York, and London, and so on. So uh, this is a great opportunity for real estate companies. But what do you think is that the upside for buyers that will buy uh, those piece of real estate as NFTs rather than just, you know, buying the normal piece of paper and, and sign it off as they do right now? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, especially for architects, because we're 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 producing the 3D model of the building in addition to the building as our deliverable. But the client doesn't get the 3D model afterwards. The, the 3D model goes into a, a server, right? It becomes a kind of graveyard of 3D spaces that we've produced digitally that, that eventually got built. But I feel like there's also value in that 3D model. It's not unuseful after we have produced it as the architect that did this particular renovation or this particular ground up building. I think it's useful to like the clients and constituents that use it. Like you might have a facilities manager that wants to see what it looks like with totally new furniture and they could use that model and just swap some things out and get an informed decision of what it would look like and how much it would cost and that sort of thing. So like the building model itself could be minted as an NFT that has a kind of persistent life afterwards. And then for an architect, if they use that to do another renovation in the future, the architect could get, could get a cut of that as like the original designer or something like that. So I think these, you know, this kind of graveyard of 3D models that we have on our server definitely could become something that has a life in the future, both for real practical things like changing something in the physical in the built environment or for previewing what it might be like or for producing a kind of totally digital only experience okay so i guess just to kind of like uh like round things out i guess like towards the end so typically i would ask a question maybe like oh where do you see this this technology in five years time or where do you see this this space but actually i want to fast forward a lot a <laughs> uh -huh. um, hundred years time how would you define an architect then what would they be doing what's their role in this space like what what tools are they using what technology are they like what what is an architect if we were to fast forward in a hundred years and you were doing that job still what what would, what would you look like yeah well you brought up the five-year thing and that got me thinking about <laughs> certain things so a hundred years time so when I started making the web version of the tool belt, we had a client who is literally on the beach and he's like, I want to check in on how the design's going. And he opened Google, Google Chrome on his MacBook Air and flew around the space and left comments and things like that for us. 
And that made me think of like the future of a single model that everyone can occupy at any time to, to kind of produce a, an architectural uh, output, right? But that that's not a hundred years time, right? I think in a hundred years time, we need to think more about how a human will interact with increasingly powerful computation and artificial intelligence and things like this. So there's a kind of dystopian vision of the AI just produces whatever and I live in it. And then there's a kind of collaborative vision of I am a human being, so I want to do creative and fulfilling work. But because of the power of this technology, I need to work with the AI, right? So hopefully in 100 years, we are able to, as a creative human that's alive, whatever, have a kind of vision that gets reinforced or uh, iterated upon by uh, artificial intelligence in order to, to, to continue to move that vision forward. So I think hopefully an architect in the future will still have a meaningful role as a creative person in producing, uh, changing the physical and virtual world. Um, and hopefully a human will not be kind of just subservient to a world that's already produced for them in an infinite number of variations. And you just kind of sit there and experience them. Fantastic. Awesome. Um, at this point, I think that we can round up our episode. Thank you so much for being with us. And, uh, uh, you know, it's been super, super interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I loved the conversation and uh, look forward to talking to you guys in the future. Brilliant. And uh, uh, as usual, we'll remind to all of our listeners and viewers on YouTube and all the streaming platform that if they enjoy the episode, they can just subscribe or uh, click thumb up on the video. And mm -hmm. as usual, we are going to be with another episode of Field of View in a month from now. For Great. Thank you so much. Did you know you can catch this full episode of Field of View and more by subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. To not miss another immersive technology moment, subscribe today.